This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon. My name is Jamie Fugelson. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations for the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to our briefing called Countering Russian Social Media Influence. Before we start, I'm going to just share a few quick items of housekeeping. First, uh, our briefing today is being recorded. We will make a, the full presentation available online on our website about a week after this event. Uh, it'll be put up at www.ran.org. In addition, uh, today's briefing is also being broadcast live on C-SPAN. Next, I want to encourage you to join our conversation online. You can do so using the hashtag, hashtag Russian disinformation. And finally, I want to tell you a little bit about the RAN Corporation. RAND is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Our research focuses on a wide set of issues, including education, healthcare, national security, energy, and a lot more. We disseminate our findings and recommendations as widely as possible to benefit the public good, and we have more than 24,000 RAND publications available for free online on our website. For this audience in particular, I'd like you to know that RAND research and expertise is also available to congressional staff and to your bosses here on Capitol Hill. Should you have any questions about today's briefing or other issues that you're working on, you can always contact me or a member of my team, and we're happy to connect you to the right experts and to get your questions answered. Uh, We want to help make sure that you guys are all aware of the research behind the many issues that you're confronting here on the Hill. Uh, Now, I want to tell you a little bit about why we're here today. Recently, in testimony before Congress, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats predicted that Russia's social media campaigns will continue to focus on aggravating social and racial tensions, undermining trust in authorities, and criticizing perceived anti-Russian politicians. The research we're going to hear about today examines the Russian disinformation chain, how it starts from the very top with Russian leadership to Russian actors and proxies through channels of amplification such as social media, and finally, uh, reaches U.S. media consumers. And importantly for this audience, uh, we're also going to focus today on the p- different steps policymakers could take to help combat this threat in the United States. I'm delighted that today we're joined by Elizabeth Bodine Barron. Elizabeth is an information scientist at RAND and specializes in complex networks and systems. She's also the associate director of the Force Modernization and Employment Program uh, for Project Air Force, which is a program that we run at RAND and co-directs the RAND Center for Applied Network Analysis and System Science. Her research includes network analysis and modeling, uh, both for domestic and national security issues. She has used network analysis of social media data to study countering violent extremism messaging, Russian propaganda, ISIS support and opposition networks, CENTCOM information operations, and U.S. Army recruiting efforts. She received a B.S. in electrical engineering and a B.A. in liberal arts from the University of Texas at Austin. And she got her Ph.D. in electrical engineering from the California Institute of Technology. Uh, So with that, I'm very pleased to turn it over to Elizabeth to start our briefing today. Excellent. Thank you all very much for coming. Everyone can hear me just fine. Project more. Okay. Excellent. So thank you for taking the time today to come to this briefing. I'll spend about 15 or so minutes talking about the research, and then hopefully we should have plenty of time for our questions and answers and discussion afterwards. 
So, countering Russian social media influence. I'm sure you've all seen the headlines about the Internet Research Agency and Russian influence in the United States over the past few years. These are four Facebook ads that were uh, promoted on Facebook various times. I'm curious, which ones do you think are actually sponsored by Russians? The side of Black Lives Matter? Votes? No? Blue Lives Matter? I see you guys are a well-informed audience. It was a trick question. Um, what we saw here was a classic example of the Russian strategy of playing both sides against the middle and seeking to widen existing divisions in our uh, democratic society. So that's just a bit of a thing to get us all thinking. I'm glad we're all on the same page here. So I'm working with a much more informed audience than I'm used to. So the threat of Russian social media disinformation. Again, we've seen lots of headlines. This is not a new phenomenon. Uh, Russia developed it originally to control internal information um, and then exported it to look at near abroad audiences within the former Soviet sphere of influence and most recently within the United States. What's different about what we've seen in the last few years, as um, seen in the intelligence community assessment, um, which I highly recommend you take a look at if you have not already, is that this is just the most recent expression of a very long-standing desire to undermine Western democratic society, in particular led by U.S. Um, what we see was a significant ex escalation in both the tactics and scope of this effort, um, starting well before the 2016 election and continuing today. Russia tends to involve different messages for different audiences, for very different uh, strategic goals. So when we look at Russian populations in Eastern Europe, a study that we did a few years ago, what we saw was that the overall uh, approach is to exploit very contentious issues and a vulnerable ethnic Russian population in their near abroad, to drive wedges between this population and their host governments, and ultimately to push, to push a very pro-Russia, anti-US, anti-EU, and anti-NATO message. It's a very different approach that they take when we're looking at the United States and Western Europe. They, the goal is to sow confusion and stoke fears um, by exploiting existing divides, essentially playing both sides, like we saw with the uh, use of police force in minority communities, in order to ultimately erode trust in Western and democratic institutions. So different approaches, different tactics for different audiences. But that's just a basic background. This briefing and what I'll be talking about today is really not so much about the how. There's a lot of really good news reporting out there, um, as well as several academic um, and private sector reports that you can read, several from the Rand Corporation. What I'm going to focus on today is really more about what we can do about it, what the public sector, what the government can do working with the private sector, what social media companies and academic academics can do to actually combat this threat today. So current efforts to combat Russian disinformation is, are really fragmented and incomplete. We have efforts by the social media companies themselves, whether it's Facebook and Twitter, to identify and remove disinformation, to update their terms of service and their user agreements to make sure that this is not allowed, and then actually identify and remove it when they see it. We have efforts within the FBI and the DHS through their countering foreign influence task forces. There are also legislative efforts, um, such as the Honest Ads Act, which ended up not passing, um, to force social media companies to reveal the funding of political ads that are purchased on their platforms, um, similar to what's currently required for radio and television ads. 
Interestingly, for the 2018 election, Facebook voluntarily did this. Um, they required funders to be disclosed for those ads and have since made um, a lot of efforts to make that entire process of purchasing ads more transparent. Then there's academic efforts, whether from think tanks um, or uh, academic institutions to identify authentic um, propaganda um, or inauthentic behavior, things like bots, um, amplifying messages on social media. But there's nothing linking all of these different efforts together and coordinating between them in order to produce an entire suite of policy approaches to combat this. And as a result... They, um, it may work in certain cases. Certainly none of them are bad approaches, um, but there's no overarching strategy. So the research um, that I led uh, with a number of other RAND researchers was to look at a whole bunch of different news media and academic reports on this phenomenon. Uh, we convened an, a workshop of various experts, including legal experts, representatives from the social media companies themselves, um, people with experience in media, um, and people with experience in influence and information operations from the intelligence community and the Department of Defense, pulling them all together to understand what are some of the potential approaches that we could take to actually combat this threat. And to talk about it, we broke the problem into um, several steps into a framework that we call a disinformation chain that allows us to characterize how does disinformation work? Where does it start? Was it, what is its target? And how does it get there? To understand both what Russia did, when, where, and how, but also what we can do about it. And I'll note that this disinformation chain is not unique to Russia. In fact, um, with some tweaks, it could be applied to any adversary trying to influence citizens of essentially any country. It's basically just a um, framework to talk about the problem and to break down solutions so that you understand what aspect of the problem a different solution is targeting. So starting out with the disinformation chain. So starting with leadership. Someone in the leadership has to make a decision that they are going to perform an influence campaign um, and it's going to target this audience with this sort of message. Um, in the example that we're talking about today, we're really talking about Russian leadership. Then we have Russian organs and proxies. In this case, we can break them up into two major groups. One is attributed media, um, in this case, um, state-sponsored domestic media, as well as state-affiliated media, and then unattributed groups. In this example, um, classic uh, example is the Internet Research Agency. So operating covertly, pretending to be someone else, but ultimately with ties to a nation state. Then we have the amplification channels, and there's some overlap between these two links, the proxies and the amplification channels, but really the distinction here is where is that message not being generated, but where is it being spread? How is it being amplified? And this is both platforms and individuals, so social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter, um, as well as other social media platforms, accounts, both real accounts um, that are actually manned by humans, um, and fake accounts, so um, people pretending to be be someone else. Um, bots, um, particularly used for retweeting um, and amplifying a message, trying to get it higher in the trending topics on Twitter or push it higher in your newsfeed, take advantage of some of those algorithms to grab your attention. Um, and then things like the U.S. news media, um, which may, without um, fully realizing it, amplify some of these messages. And then unaffiliated websites are also a common source that we put into here. 
finally, we have the target of the disinformation campaign. In this example, it's U.S. citizens and U.S. decision makers. And prior research, when we were looking at um, Eastern Europe, the goal not only included uh, U.S. citizens, but also European citizens, Russian populations, NATO decision makers, and allies. So what are our options? Looking at the first link in this chain, the goal is essentially to shape Moscow's decision-making, the deterrence approach. We looked at a lot of different options um, for different policy solutions that could be used to shape Moscow's decision-making. A few are listed here. Um, they're discussed in detail in the report that you all have a copy of. Um, we basically went through different ideas and talked about the pros and cons and the costs of these different approaches. So just because I have it listed up here does not mean that I recommend doing it. Um, so, for example, from a defensive perspective, you could look at making it more difficult for these influence operations to succeed and essentially deter Russian leadership from engaging in the first place because it's not worth the cost. Um, you could also look at taking a more offensive approach, whether that's using sanctions, um, either economic sanctions or political sanctions, um, to even go more offensive, looking at things like promoting democracy within Russia. This was one of the options that we looked at and was like, no, turns out the cons of that are are actually quite large, not a good approach. Um, some things that are kind of more in the middle ground, looking at enforcing clear norms of behavior on these platforms for, for nation states, what is allowed, what's not, and perhaps coming to a shared agreement about those norms. We can also, air conditioning is quite loud in this room. Can you all still hear me? Okay. <laughs> um, so looking at limiting these organs and proxies, um, one of the uh, key things here is you need to be able to detect them. You need to be able to identify them. Naming and shaming is a commonly uh, espoused approach where you say this is a Russian proxy. They're pretending to be someone else, but pay attention. They're actually uh, sponsored by a particular actor. Um, looking at deterring or curtailing those activities. And again, defining and monitoring norms. What are media entities allowed to do on social media platforms? Looking at the amplification channels, the goal here really is to limit the impact and spread of disinformation on those amplification channels. So part of that is being able to better identify and detect it. Um, and once it's detected, either remove it or counter it, provide an alternative narrative, um, something like that. And this requires a lot of close coordination between not only the private social media companies, but public sector as well. So I'll get into that when we come to the actual record recommendations. Finally, looking at the last link, we want to improve consumer knowledge and judgment. One of the most uh, commonly heard themes here will be uh, use media literacy campaigns. Make sure our children are educated about how to distinguish between fact and fiction. Um, probably a good idea. But the question is really how effective is that? Um, and is it worth the money and the time and the resources that are invested in it? Unfortunately, there's a lack of really rigorous research in this area. So that be, could be an area that could be promoted is really understanding what makes an effective media literacy campaign. What are the elements of it? How should it be funded and enacted? Um, you can also look at studying and publicizing the impact of disinformation on social media, making people aware that this is a problem. And here's how, from a personal perspective, to understand how to distinguish it, but then why it might impact you. Why is it something that an everyday U.S. citizen should care about?
I will state up front, no single solution is perfect. They all have different pros and different cons. What we espouse is a suite of solutions that can target multiple links in this disinformation chain at the same time so that you're coming at the problem from multiple different perspectives. The first is establishing both clear and enforceable norms for acceptable behavior on these platforms, both from nation states and the media entities on them. It's possible that existing treaties could serve as a model in this area, looking at the treaties for um, prohibiting the use of chemical and biological weapons, um, with several nations signing on to them, agreeing exactly this is allowed, this is not allowed. But as with those treaties, and perhaps even more so when we're talking about disinformation, attribution is going to be critical. How do you understand that this piece of disinformation was pushed by this nation nation state um, in violation of that treaty? That's the big challenge with here, but nevertheless, an area that's worth investigating. We can also look at better coordinating uh, U.S. government activities from the legislative branch to the executive branch, um, looking at the tasks for, task forces that are already existing within FBI and DHS, making sure that they're connected to efforts um, in developing legislation in Congress to some of the uh, foreign policy and foreign affairs being pursued by the Department of State. And finally, bringing in both the intelligence community and Department of Defense, where a lot of this expertise in terms of detecting and understanding information operations lies, making sure that they're sharing that expertise with the other elements of government um, and getting people to work together. Um, the question is, how do you actually uh, make this happen? Is an executive order the right way to go with this, to actually make these different organizations play well together? Um, rather than having them volunteer to do so on their own. That, I think, is an open question. One of the most important recommendations uh, that I think has the best potential for succeeding is to institute a formal organization for information sharing. Um, Back in the 80s, we had the Active Measures Working Group, um, which worked to expose uh, Russian disinformation and traditional uh, news media. It was actually run out of the Department of State. Um, That has since... Uh, been disbanded. There's still a working group and things like that, but it doesn't um, have the same uh, power and authority that it used to. The key difference between that effort in the 80s and what we're proposing here is that you have to loop in the private social media companies. They have to buy into this and they have to be willing participants. Um, So this organization will need to have appropriate authority. It needs to have expertise and it needs to be resourced. Um, And like I said, involve both that public and private sector engagement. Another thing that could be helpful is try to increase the transparency of the algorithms and the policies on these social media platforms. Um, How are they detecting uh, disinformation? How are they removing it? How are they defining it Um, and making that clear, not just to um, the government, but also to individual users of those platforms? Um, The question is really, is it possible even to incentivize these private companies to increase the transparency. These algorithms are what are underlying their profit models. Um, And despite some of the announcements recently um, by Mark Zuckerberg, we'll probably still continue to drive their profits for the near term. Um, Looking at why are you seeing something in your news feed or in trending topics on Twitter. Also, there's the question about what's allowed and what's not allowed, those policies, that user agreement. Is there a way to increase the transparency of these rules without enabling adversaries to get around those rules? Um, And I think this is an interesting area uh, for where more research could be performed. And along those lines, 
how do we encourage and fund academia to develop those tools? Um, this could come from government sources. It could come from private sources like foundations, um, research grants. I think this is an area that is really ripe for more investment uh, and funding. The twist here will really be, in order to do this research proper, properly, rigorously, they need access to real-world data. This is going to require cooperation from private companies. So again, going back to that idea of increased transparency, if there's an approach to detect and remove uh, disinformation or provide an alternative narrative, how do we, for lack of a better word, audit that, uh, that new approach? Can we say it is effective and it is worth the investment um, that we're putting into it? And that is going to require some sort of cooperation. So how do you enable access to real-world data while maintaining user privacy and protecting um, these companies' profits? One of the things that we think is really important in this discussion um, is essentially don't go overboard. Um, prioritizing defensive activities over punishments. Um, we think that the consequences of engaging in overt promoting democratic uh, activities and democracy within Russia has a much larger downside. Um, it's essentially we run the risk of being called hypocritical. Now maybe you're okay with that, but the problem is we didn't. We then just engage in an arms race, and it's an all-out uh, free for all. You know, anyone can push any information to achieve their objectives. If we prioritize the defensive activities, if we make it harder for disinformation to succeed in the United States, um, that we think has the most promise for actually being able to shape the decision making. And finally, it's really important to continuously assess both the cost and impact of these proposed solutions. This list is what we think right now could work. Two years from now, ten years from now may not be the same list. Things may have changed. The environment may have changed. New technology may have appeared. It's important to not just say, oh, we did this thing and we solved it and we're done. You need to continuously assess how effective are these various solutions. Are they worth the cost um, and the resources that we're putting into them? Is it actually being effective in terms of reducing the overall amount of disinformation and the impact of disinformation on these various platforms? So in summary, just to give you a quick recap of what we think are some of the top policy actions that could be undertaken now. Increasing government coordination. Establishing and enforcing norms for both nation states and media entities on social media platforms. Prioritizing defensive activities over offensive activities. Um, improving the detection and attribution tools through funding um, either of academia, academia um, private companies, um, think tanks, whatever it might be. Basically improving our technology to be able to say this is a piece of disinformation, this is how it's impacted someone. Instituting this formal organization and giving it the appropriate resources, making sure they have access to the right expertise, and they actually have the authority to do something about it. Um, Part of the role of this organization would be to figure out a way to incentivize the transparency of the algorithms on, on these private uh, social media companies. And finally, assessing and improving the solutions, not just doing a one-and-done approach, but actually taking a comprehensive look and understanding, is this the right way to go? Should we continue down this path, or do we need to change direction? Um, and I think without engaging in at least some of these activities, this is a problem that's only going to continue to grow. We're going to see more and more erosion of trust in our democratic institutions. And so this is something that needs action now, not just from the legislative side, but also the executive and other branches of government. So thank you very much, and I am happy to take questions.
This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.